Shane read from Colossians chapter 1 where it talks about Christ being preeminent, Christ being first in all things. And I explained to the counseling classes yesterday that Christ must be first in everything, and that includes in our, uh, our counseling. And perhaps today I can take us to a passage in the Gospel of John that shows us why Christ is first, why he must be first in everything that we do in ministry and life and faith and everything. And that passage is John's gospel, chapter 1, really just verse 1. Let me read the first three verses as we begin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, I don't know how you feel when I read those verses, but as a preacher, when I come to that verse, John 1.1, I feel like an architect who has been trained to design homes and has unexpectedly been commissioned to design and build the Cologne Cathedral. I'm an insect lost in the grandeur and the glory of the greatness of Jesus Christ in John 1.1. You see, what John does here in his opening verse is unique in all the Gospels. Mark begins his Gospel talking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke and Matthew begin their Gospels by speaking of the beginning of Jesus' earthly life in Mary's womb. In comparison, John's introduction streaks like a comet across the sky with a million-mile-long tail. The other Gospels are just fixed points of light. But John blazes this glorious path across time and creation and preexistence and deity itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, to start his gospel, John goes beyond all beginnings. When everything began, the Word already was. He was both with God and God at the same time, as the commentator Leon Morris says. If that's a staggering affirmation to us, there's no reason for thinking that it was anything less so to the Jewish author of this gospel. When he thinks of the word, he lays it down unequivocally that nothing less than God will do for our understanding of the word, quote. In fact, I would suggest that this statement in John 1.1 is really the lens through which we must read the entirety of the rest of the Gospel of John. If you don't start here where John starts, then you can understand nothing that follows. Here John gives you the presupposition of his Gospel. The one of whom he writes, Jesus of Nazareth, is God. Now, let me illustrate this the significance of this in a, in, in a shocking, overwhelming, and maybe even in a sense terrible way. Keep the stones in your pocket as I do this, okay? This is just an illustration, but, but let, me, let me illustrate the power and the significance of this text in a way that is perhaps will finally drive home to us the meaning of this. What if we took the names of some of the founders of other world religions and put those names in John 1.1. What if we read, in the beginning was Buddha, and Buddha was with God, and Buddha was, and I'm not even going to finish the sentence. It just doesn't work. In fact, it's, it's awful, isn't it? 
or in the beginning was Muhammad, and Muhammad was, was with God, and Muhammad was God. I mean, it doesn't work. It's, it's absurd. It's, it's blasphemous. Not even a Muslim would think or say that. In the beginning was Confucius or Moses, and Confucius was with God and was God, or Moses was God. Does that help you understand the crushing, pulverizing, shattering gravity of this opening statement of the Gospel of John? Only of Jesus Christ, only of our Lord Jesus Christ, can you say this and have it not be absurd blasphemy. There is no other in all the history of the human race, no other all the history of the, the angelic race, of whom this statement can be said without it being laughable nonsense. Of no man, of no woman, of no other being can you say what John 1, 1 says. Only of Jesus Christ, God become man. In this opening line then, what John has done is he has placed Jesus Christ in a category utterly by himself. He has no rivals. He has no competitors. There is indeed, to borrow the words of Isaiah, no one like him. Now, these great words, as you know, are the first words in what is called the prologue of John's gospel, an incredibly unique and powerful section of the gospel of John, indeed of all the scripture. As we begin this, because we're going to focus on verse 1, however, I want to focus for a moment on a couple of key verses in that prologue to just give you a a sense where John is going with this. It, of course, begins in verse 1, but equally important in John's development is verse 14 and verse 18 as well. Verse 1 starts off by telling you that the word is pre-existent gods. In verse 14, he says that that pre-existent eternal word became flesh, and that makes the word Jesus of Nazareth, of course, right? Verse 14, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He Literally, you could translate, he pitched his tent among us. And hear the wonder in John's voice. We saw his glory. Can you believe it? The living God came and pitched his tent among us and we saw his glory. As of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then what verse 18 does, it gives us the primary or one of the primary reasons for the incarnation. The pre-existent, eternal word took on human flesh so that he could explain God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God at any time, the infinite, invisible God. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word, Jesus Christ, is the keyhole through whom we gaze to understand the infinite God, God the Father, and although he's not mentioned here, we would obviously add from later in the Gospel of John, God the Spirit as well. It's a very simple fact that it takes God to explain God. It takes God to explain God. There is a sense in which there is no analogy for God. We, we call him Father and that is appropriate, but there is a real sense in which there is no analogy for God because there is no one like him. And so it really is in the end is going to take God to explain God. And Jesus can do that. 
Jesus can do that because he is, to use those great theological words, co-eternal, consubstantial. He is God of very God. He is not some subordinate subduity commissioned with a task that is really beyond his essence and ability. He is a living, breathing paragraph telling us in full, or as fully as we can understand anyway, telling us who God is. He is the connection between the eternal, infinite longings in our heart and the eternal, infinite God who fulfills those longings. He is the bridge. God become man so that we might see, so that we might touch, so that we might taste, so that we might feel, in a sense, as John said here, he came and he dwelt among us so that we might know God and in him and through the cross and through the forgiveness of God, be right with God and have all our deepest longings satisfied in our creator. Now, today as we gaze at the sweeping, dizzying grandeur and glory of the cathedral of John 1.1, what we're going to find is three exalting truths about Christ. Three things that make him preeminent. Three things that mean he must be first in all things. And those three preeminent truths or three exalting truths are he is God eternal. Number two, he is God distinct. And number three, he is God equal. See if you can see those things as we read verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he sums up in verse two, he was in the beginning with God. The glorious exalting truth about Jesus Christ that is yielded by the first bit of verse one, of course, is that Jesus is God eternal. In the beginning, says John, was the Word. This is a sheer, brute declaration of the pre-existence of God, the Son, the Word. Now, scholars in John 1, if you read the commentaries, do all kinds of bizarre gymnastics, speculating about where John draws the profound thoughts of this prologue from. Here in verse 1, at least, there, there is no question. Here there is no doubt, there's no question, because the opening words in Greek, in RK, or in the beginning, are exactly the opening words of Genesis 1-1 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is critical to John, then, that you understand that while all other things had a beginning, the word had none. He is preexistent. He is uncreated. He is eternal. The verb was in the first line is in the imperfect tense, and that's a tense that denotes continuing, repeated, enduring action in the past. In the beginning in Genesis 1, when God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, the word already was and enduringly so, says John. When God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, let the birds fly above the earth, the word already existed. When God made the sun and the moon and the stars, the word was. When God gathered the waters into one place and caused the dry land to appear, the word was. When God said, let there be light, the word was. In the beginning, 
when everything else had its beginning, the word already, enduringly, perpetually, continually was. He didn't become. He just was. See, in your Bible, before Genesis 1-1, there's some white spaces. That's where our Lord was, In the words of one commentator, it is fundamental to John that the word is not to be included among created things. End quote, right? The heavens and the earth, they became. The plants, the animals, angels, Adam and Eve became. The the physical stuff of the creation, it it became. The word was preexisting and eternal. And so what John has done with one stroke of his pen is he has put the word, our Lord Jesus Christ, outside of the realm of everything else that you know. Because everything you know became. Look around this morning. Anyone here that didn't become? That didn't have a start? Everything you know and I know had a beginning. You became, the the people around you became, everything you see and touch and taste and feel and hear and know became, the word never became. When all else was starting in the six days of creation, he already enduringly and eternally was. As I'm sure you know, one of the great doctrinal controversies of the history of the church is called Arianism. Arius was a preacher in Alexandria of Egypt, one of the great cities of the New Testament and post-New Testament world. Around AD 320, Arius started to preach sermons and to write songs in the city of Alexandria about Jesus in which he said of the Christ, the Son of God, in which he said there was when he was not. The Son, argued Arius, began. He started. He did not exist. God the Son, he said, did not exist at one point, and then, boop, he popped into existence at another point. Arius was the original Jehovah's Witness, if you will, denying the full deity and the full eternality of Christ. However, Arius' heretical notion of the word beginning is just frankly destroyed here in verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was, enduringly, perpetually, in the beginning was the Word. When everything else began, he was, says John. Now, you might want to challenge that, and you might say, well, maybe the Word began just a couple of minutes, maybe a couple of hours before Genesis 1-1. That's what Arius would argue. Maybe all that John is saying is that the Son or the word's beginning was just a little bit further back in eternity past, but he he actually did begin. Look at verse 3. To counter that, look at verse 3. All things came into being through him, through God the Son, through Christ. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, which is kind of a laborious way to say he is the uncreated creator. The Word is the uncreated creator. He did not start. He did not begin. He was not created. Everything that was created, in fact, he created. And therefore, the right and full interpretation of John 1.1 is that the Word, God the Son, was preexistent and co-eternal with the Father. His name, 
just as much as the Father's name is I am or I exist. When everything else began, he enduringly, continually, perpetually, eternally was. He is God eternal. But that's only the first. That's only the first exultant truth about Christ in this verse. The second exultant truth is that he is God distinct. He is God eternal and he is God distinct. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was with God. Now, there's nothing especially profound or shocking about that statement, of course, until you read to the end of the verse where it says, and the word was God. Now it gets a little bit confusing, doesn't it? Already in the very first verse of his gospel, John is introducing us to the doctrine of the Trinity. One God consisting of three equal but distinct persons. Now, as I said, there's nothing shocking about the word being with God. I mean, you could have said that of you and me if we were there, right? Nothing shocking about that. But it's the fact that he is God and distinct from God the Father at the same time that's mind-numbing. The word translated with there is a little preposition that, that emphasized being with another person. That's a very common usage for it. To be with another person. It, it implies being face-to-face in an intimate relationship. In other words, the word was eternally pre-existing in a personal face-to-face relationship with God the Father. And that relationship included glory. It included complete, infinite union or companionship. An enduring, indescribable divine love. And we know that because Jesus actually talks about this over in John 17. Let's turn there for a moment in that great prayer at the end of the Last Supper. Jesus speaks in that prayer of his pre-temporal relationship with the Father. What exactly was the Trinity doing before they made the world, right? Well, Jesus gives a glimpse of it here anyway in John 17. Starting in verse 5. In John 17, 5, as Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. See, before Genesis 1, 1, God the Son had a relationship with God the Father and it was a relationship of perpetual, inexpressible glory. It was also a relationship of deep personal communion. Jump down the page to verse 20. And Jesus, praying for the disciples there and for us as well, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. They also may be in us. What were the Father and the Son, and of course the Spirit as well, what were they doing before the foundation of the world? They were in a deep, perpetual communion. The Father and the Son, the Son and the Father. It was also a relationship of deep, perpetual love. Look at verse 24. In one of the most incomprehensible verses and statements in all the Bible, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. I can understand why I want to be with Jesus. I'm not quite sure why he would want me to be with him, right? 
But that is his prayer. Father, I want those whom you've given to me to be with me where I am. Why is that? So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world's. In John 1.1, 1, 1, John said, in the beginning was the word, and what the word had been doing in all of his eternal existence before Genesis 1 was loving and being loved by the Father and the Spirit. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, the distinctness of the word of God the Son from God the Father, the distinctness of the two within the Trinity is seen all over the Gospel of John. It's seen as the Father sends the Son, as the Father speaks to the Son, and as for the sake of sinners, the Father forsakes the Son on the cross. What that means is there is no room in John's gospel for what theologians would call modalism. That sounds complicated, but it's not hard. The idea is modalism is that God is one person who appears in three different modes. Sometimes he'll appear as the father, and then he'll jump into the phone booth and do a quick change, and and then he'll appear as the son, and and then later on he'll appear as the spirit. One God appearing in three different modes. Here John makes it clear that the father and the son are not like Clark Kent and Superman, who you never see at the same time in the same place. The word was with God, a distinct person. Now, as I said, that's not shocking by itself. I mean, a polytheist could embrace and understand that. It's astounding, however, when you combine it with the last bit of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the math doesn't seem to add up, right? This should cause us to do a double take. The word is with God and God at the same time. I don't understand how that works. Jesus Christ is exalted above all. He is first. He is preeminent because he is God eternal. He is God distinct. And thirdly, he is God equal. Now, as you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses make much of this verse saying that since there is no the in Greek, and that's true enough in that last statement, that this should be translated, the word was a God. And they would say that that is the only true grammatical way to translate John 1.1, a translation that would, if true, place Jesus below the Father as some kind of sub-deity, divine but not fully divine. And since they come to my house in South Africa, actually they don't come anymore because I've kind of have a habit of chasing them off, um, asking them questions they can't answer and then preaching Christ to them and calling them to repentance. So there's a big invisible black X on our gate. They don't come to our house anymore. But, but because they do come to our house at times in South Africa, just like they probably come to your house and your neighborhood here in Atlanta, maybe I can make a couple of comments about that. First of all, let me point out to you that the Jehovah's Witnesses are very, very selective in where they apply this supposedly absolute translational principle that if there is no the, it must be translated a God. 
The noun theos, or God, is used 282 times in the New Testament without the word the in front of it. Only in 16 of those 282 do the JWs translate it like they do here in John 1.1. In other words, 266 times out of the 282, they violate what they say in John 1.1 is an absolute rule. In short, if you do the math, they are faithful to their most important translational principle 6% of the time. In fact, here in John 1, verses 1 through 18, in this text itself, the word God is used eight times without the word the in front of it. Six times they don't translate it in their New World translation, they don't translate it a God. Why? Because the translation is so obviously wrong. In other words, the translators of the New World Translation were playing games in John 1.1, and they knew it. They knew it. The issue is not grammar. The issue is their theological pre-commitments. If they had applied that rule faithfully, then they should have translated verse 1, in a beginning was the word, because there's no the in that statement in the Greek. In the same way, verse 4 should read, in him was a life. But they don't translate it that way. They translate it, the life, just like your versions read. The reason they don't translate it that way is because everyone who studies Greek knows that sometimes nouns are definite, even if they don't have a the in front of them. Based on the context, it cannot be a beginning. It must be the beginning. Furthermore, there is a perfectly good and acceptable way in Greek to say that the word was merely divine but not fully God. Somewhat God but not fully God. There's a way to say that in Greek. The common Greek word for that was theios. Theos is God. If you put an I in the middle of it, you get theios, and that means just kind of divine. John didn't use that word. John did not use theios. He said the word was theos, the word was God, not merely some kind of semi-divine sub-deity. Here's another important point. The lack of a definite article in Greek, you can check this with Shane later, he'll confirm. The lack of a definite article in Greek points out towards quality or essence. And we often say this when we talk about the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3, where it says he is a a, a one-woman kind of man. It's not so much the husband of one wife. It was actually legal in the Roman Empire at that time to have more than one wife, so that's not what Paul is saying. He is, by quality, a one-woman kind of man. That's what the lack of the says. It's quality or essence. So in other words, what John is doing here in John 1.1 is he's saying that the word was both with God as a distinct person and he was by absolute quality and essence God. John has done an amazing thing. John has done an amazing thing. He has taught the doctrine of the Trinity in 10 words. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I, I hope it was the inspiration of the Spirit that made him that good. But, but, you know, he taught, just taught the doctrine of the Trinity in 10 words. And, you know, in English, none of them are more than one syllable. Have you ever heard a theologian teach anything in words that are only one syllable? Of course not. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is a 10-word lesson on the Trinity. The Word and God the Father are distinct, but share the same essence. And isn't that what Hebrews 1, verse 3 says? He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Distinct person, but exact same essence. The simple truth is, by the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle John has chosen the most concise way possible in the Greek language to express the doctrine of the Trinity. And you add the Spirit, you have one God eternally existing in three equal, equally divine persons. Now, uh, we've gotten the microscope out and we've looked at the, the leaves, the branches, and you know, the bark of the tree. We've seen all that. So let's now pull back a look a little bit and look at the whole tree, maybe even the forest. Let's consider the meaning of this statement. It means that Jesus Christ is first. It means that he is preeminent and he must be first in all things. He is above all because, in fact, he is God of very God. He, he is God in eternity past. He is God at the moment of creation. He is God when he takes on humanity as a micro dot in Mary's womb. He is God at his birth. He is God while he's learning to swing a hammer in his father Joseph's workshop. He is God, and no, I don't understand this either, but he he is God when he is tired and thirsty and hungry and sleeping in the back of the boat during this ministry years. He is God on the cross. He, He is God when he rises from the dead. He is God forever. He is one person with two natures, divine and human. Two natures, unmixed, unconflicting. And, of course, Jesus wasn't shy about declaring his full equality with the Father. It nearly got him stoned several times. John 10, 31, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 8, verse 58, Jesus claimed that great Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, which means I am or I exist, with all of its eternal overtones. Before Abraham was I am. It's really bad grammar and great theology. So John starts his gospel with the most profound, exalting declarations about Christ. Jesus Christ is God eternal. He is God distinct. He is God equal. And he summarizes in verse two, he was in the beginning with God's. Now, having said all that, if I ended the sermon here, I would have not served you well. If I ended the sermon here this morning, I would not have served you well. You wouldn't quite have to take me out in the parking lot and stone me, but you might burn me in effigy at least. And, and some of you are probably picking up why I'm saying that already. See, because is for all that I've already said, I have left out through the entirety of the sermon so far one of the most important things in this verse I've left one critical part of this verse unexplained. 
I have failed in my duty to you as an expositor. And you say, why is that? Because up to now, I have not explained the most obvious word in the verse. The word, word. The word, word. John's title for Jesus, the word. And because you're familiar with it, you may not think it's that big a deal. But the truth is, it is a big deal. Because nobody else in the Bible uses it. Nobody else in the Bible uses it of Jesus. John doesn't even use it anywhere else. Where in the world did John get this title for Jesus Christ? Why does he call Jesus the word here in the prologue, something he he doesn't do anywhere else in his gospel and something no no other New Testament writer does? We need to take this word, word apart for a minute. Now, the Greek word, as I'm sure you know, is the word logos, right? In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. So what does that title, logos, mean? Let me explain. Because it's here that we reach the pinnacle of the Christ-exalting spire of the cathedral of John 1.1. John, in a stroke of divinely produced genius, draws together two profound threads with this title, The Word. Let me explain. It's going to have a Greek background and there's going to be a Hebrew background as well. And both are very important. In educated Greek culture, the logos was in fact a very familiar concept. Leon Morris says it this way. In Greek thinking, the logos was an all-pervading principle. The rational principle of the universe. It was a creative energy. All things in one sense came from the logos. That's how Greeks thought The use of the term would have brought to an educated Greek's mind, says Morris, thoughts of something extremely, supremely great. It was the stabilizing, directing principle of the universe. You know, physicists today are still looking for the unifying principle. The Greeks would have called that the logos. That's part of the background of the word logos, intentionally used here by John, I believe, to capture the attention of his Greek readers. When speaking of Jesus, John makes it clear with the title logos that he is referring to something supremely great. Now, take that and set it aside for a moment. We're going to come back to it. But there's another background to this as well, and this is the Hebrew idea from the Old Testament. How did God create the universe according to Genesis 1? With a logos. With a word. And God said, let there be light and so on. Genesis 1 used the word, word or speaking of, for God speaking his mind with an omnipotent creative force. The universe that God imagined in his infinite mind, he spoke or he logosed into existence. But in the Old Testament, God does not only create by speaking, he also reveals himself by speaking. God is a talking God. Unlike the mute idols of the pagans, the true God, the living God, the real God, he is a talking God. And you know his mind and you know his will, his dislikes and his pleasures, his laws and his plans by what he says. 
His speaking at Mount Sinai when he spoke the Ten Commandments is an obvious example of God revealing himself with words, as are the prophetic announcements of the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. And so for the Hebrew mind, God's word was a powerful, accurate reflection of God's mind and character. Now, what John does here in this verse, in John 1.1, is he brings those two thoughts, that Greek idea and that Hebrew idea, together in an amazing, frankly, never heard of before combination to express the glory of Jesus Christ. His use of the word logos is totally new. In fact, I would suggest to you there is no way of translating John 1.1 that can wrap its arms around both the Greek and the Hebrew backgrounds. We just don't have one word that would capture it all. For the Greek, we might say this. The Greek idea is in the beginning was the controlling, guiding principle of the universe. And the principle was with God, and it was God, and it doesn't cut it because Jesus is not an it. It doesn't cut it because the controlling principle that John is describing is not a law. It is not a a philosophical concept. In fact, the logos is not a principle at all. It's, It's a person. The supremely great thing in Greek philosophy might be an idea or a concept or a force, but John brushes that aside and declares that the supremely great thing in the universe is actually a person. And that's what Paul is driving at in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He doesn't use the word logos, but he's clearly referring to the same idea. By him, by Christ, all things were created. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. John just used the word, logos. Jesus Christ is the logos, the controlling, creative person who began and sustains the universe. The pinnacle of the glory of the universe, the the underlying power that made and sustains all things, is not a philosophical abstraction. It is a person who is eternally with God and God at the same time. But of course that that controlling principle translation doesn't wrap its arms around the idea of speaking, which is that Hebrew background of the idea. And so we're going to have to have a second equally important way of translating this As the word, Jesus is the revealer of the mind and the character and the nature of God. But here's something interesting. The word logos did not refer so much to an individual word. There was another word for that in Greek, rhema. The word logos referred to a message, a a series of words lumped together. And so what John is saying is that Jesus is not just the controlling principle or person of the universe. He is also the message, the report, the proclamation, the instruction, the declaration, the revelation of God. In fact, while it might be a little self-serving since I'm a preacher, I think we can put that in one word. 
According to John 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is God's sermon. That would be one way to translate this. Jesus is God's sermon. That's actually a legitimate way to translate the word logos in some context. And maybe that's how we should translate it here. You see, God is a talking God. God is a preaching God. He has been doing that from Genesis 1.1 onwards. When God speaks the creation into existence, those words, let there be light, they are a sermon. They are a sermon about himself, declaring his intellect and his power, his majesty and his glory. And that's exactly what Psalm 19 says, isn't it? The heavens declare, they recount in chronological order and in systematic order, they recount the glory of God day to day, says David, pours forth speech. And then he says, well, there's actually no words. He says, when, when, when you see a sunrise and a sunset, and you see the grandeur of that, and you see the glory of that, there is no audible voice, but that's a sermon. That is a sermon about the glory of God. Their beauty, the sunrise and the sunset, their beauty is an echo of the voice that called them into being. Creation is a sermon. The Ten Commandments, of course, were a sermon. Mount Sinai is the pulpit and God is preaching. And he preaches there in an audible divine voice and his voice so terrified the people that they scattered in fear, running to escape the inescapable God. And God preached all through the Old Testament. Every time the prophet said, thus saith the Lord, God was preaching again using the voice box of men. Do you know what? All of those sermons, all those sermons were merely preliminary, preparatory. They were preface. Because the sermon that explains God, the sermon that explains God, the sermon that reveals God's glory and God's mind better than any other is the sermon. Jesus Christ. And of course, your mind is running to Hebrews 1 immediately. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in many portions and to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, in his son. In light of that, I think we could translate those key verses in John 1, something like this. In the beginning was the sermon. And the sermon was with God, and the sermon was God. And God's sermon became flesh and dwelt among us. No one has seen the invisible, infinite God at any time, but the sermon has explained him. So John presents Jesus as the creator and controller of the universe in John 1.1. But he also presents him as God's word, as God's message. God is a preacher. And Jesus Christ is his very best sermon. When you open the Gospels and you read and you see Jesus' compassion for sinners, his power over a storm, his anger at self-righteous pride, you are hearing God's best sermon on those subjects. 
When you see him healing the sick, when you see him forgiving the sinful cast-offs, God is preaching about himself. When you see Jesus dying on the cross in self-sacrificial love, bearing the just wrath of his Father, in the place of sinners, what God is doing is preaching about himself. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the sermon. The one who explains God better than any other because he is God. He has been with the Father from the beginning, from before all beginnings. He was face to face with God, an intimate, knowing, loving relationship. He is God's. And he came. He came, permanently adding humanity to his eternal, divine existence so that he could explain God to us, to you. Don't miss the sermon. Don't miss the sermon. Whatever you do, don't miss the sermon. Because Jesus Christ is God's best sermon. Jesus is the message about God. He is the way to God. And of course, it is only through faith in him and believing in him that you will be saved, that you can come to God. He is God's final word. Jesus is God's very best sermon. My friends, don't miss the sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a Lord and a Savior who is so incredibly great and so incredibly wonderful and powerful and profound. Thank you for this great passage that, that lays it out for us in such simple words and yet so greatly. Lord, whatever we do, we don't want to miss the sermon. He is first in all things, our Lord and Savior. He is first in our hearts. He is first in our worship. He is first in this church, in my church in Pretoria. He is first everywhere. Christ must be first in all things. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son so that we might know and love you, forgiven forever by your grace and with you where you are so we might know your glory forever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.